back to It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks that we hope you haven't forgotten about. I'm Brian. And I'm Caroline. And yeah, the delay between episodes lasted a lot longer than we thought. Um, it's been pretty busy over here. It turns out being a parent is difficult. Yeah, it takes a lot of time. I feel like people tell you that it's really expensive, and it is. But there is kind of a limit to how much you can even pay other people to take care of your kid for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, we're really good parents. Also, we're really good parents, yeah. and we like spending time with our child. So we could just stick him in a corner in his high chair. Right. Right. But we haven't done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put him in the closet while we record the podcast. Mm-hmm. Mommy and Daddy are busy. Yeah. But- You'll understand when you're older and you listen to the podcast. (laughs) So that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. And you know what? It's so insightful. Yeah, it was worth it. It was worth it. But then we decided that, you know what, by the time he's an adult, there probably won't be a such a thing as a podcast because, you know, civilization will have collapsed in the um, climate wars. So we should probably take care of him now, prepare him for the climate wars. Right. And Twin Peaks will be canceled. Yeah. I mean, canceled, not in the original sense it was canceled as in taken off the air, but canceled in the ideological sense in that uh, we'll decide it was evil because, I don't know, um, the characters use too much plastic. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's pro-plastic. Right, it's pro-plastic. People are getting wrapped in it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Okay, so... Without further ado, um, our last episode, which was some months ago, we had started our discussion of the film Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, and we had talked uh, in that two-parter about the FBI section, which is basically a chronicle of the investigation into the death of Teresa Banks. We spent time with um, Detective Chet. What's his name? Chet Desmond. Chet Desmond. I didn't remember his last name. What does that tell you? And um, he has his own MO. He has his own MO. That's true. I remember that. Um, and we see David Bowie make a very nice appearance. And we wanted to devote um, at least one episode and probably a couple just to the section of the film that deals with Laura, um, because that is the bulk of the film and uh, it should have its own space. Mm-hmm. So that says where we are. Why don't I start us off? I think the way to open this, and because we are talking about the Lara section specifically, when this film premiered, it was famously controversial. It got a lot of bad reviews, and it's really only been reappraised in the last decade or so. Um, It was booed at Con. It was booed at Con. And to be fair, they love booing people. It's they either boo or they give you a standing ovation. It seems like there's nothing in between. They never say, meh. They never say, this wasn't for me. They also booed Frankenheimer seconds. Yeah. It tells you how much they know. The French. Um, But they loved, um, they loved Wild at Heart. Yeah. Didn't they? Yeah, justifiably. Anyway, a lot of people didn't like this film. And one of the criticisms of it was that when it was announced there would be a Twin Peaks film, people were hoping for answers. 
The TV show left on a cliffhanger with a lot of questions up in the air, a lot of things still unexplained. And I think people were hoping that some of it would be explained and Mm -hmm. some of it would be resolved. Like we find out what happened to Dale and did he get out of the lodge and did he save the day and what happened to Audrey in the explosion, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And people specifically said, this just showed us Laura's last few days and we already knew all this stuff we already knew all of the stuff that happened to her we don't need to see it and I guess what I want to ask and what I want to talk about is why did David Lynch think and Mark Frost too because he what he wasn't really involved but he you know um David Lynch and collaborators I guess why did they think we needed to see this what are we getting out of this? What is what is the why for this film? Mm-hmm. What is it doing that the TV show didn't do? Well, um, before I answer that question mm-hmm. definitively, sure. <laughs> uh, I do want to point out what is explained mm-hmm. in Firewalk with Me, yeah, which is uh, all of the most unimportant details from yeah. the series yeah like, isn't that interesting like there's drugs on the key i think mm-hmm. or, is that right and yeah you see her keeping her drugs in the bag with the key yeah yeah which we could have inferred that that's how it happened right right uh it's kind of uh interesting how meticulously they mm-hmm. <laughs> they filled in some of those gaps right right um or there were things that are featured in the in the movie that ha- that are connected with the show but are still unexplained. Mm-hmm. Like uh, in the show, Donna wears um, wears Laura's glasses right. and then seems to take on her personality or some aspect of her personality mm-hmm. in a magical way. Yeah. Um, that's more, or, or I don't know if it's is it just psychological? Is it supernatural? Right, and then. The same thing happens in the movie when Donna wears uh, wears Laura's jacket, mm-hmm. and Laura's very specific, saying, "Don't, don't wear my stuff." Yeah, I don't want you to be like me. Right. Well, that's what it means. Right. <laughs> uh, which is obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, she she says it, and then there's the signifier of wearing the clothes and becoming yes. like the person. Mm-hmm. But as for an explanation, yeah. Um, uh, uh, for like an in in universe explanation for whether these this is a magical effect or not right it's not really explained mm-hmm. yeah but there's a connection um, right. so it's a lot of little details like that yes um, that are that show up in the movie that they were obviously thinking mm-hmm. thinking hard about yeah. those details yeah but. What uh, then? A lot of things are not explained, right? Um, and a lot of new lore is introduced. Mm-hmm. A lot of things uh, seem to conflict with the with the series. Like what? Well, I think the biggest thing is the portrayal of Leland and his relationship with Bob, the demon that possesses him. Yes, and um, we've talked about this. Yeah, and so why don't, why don't we talk about it here? My my opening question is kind of an overarching thing. So why don't we talk about Leland? What do we learn about Leland? Well, he, uh, you know, we have said before that he that the line between Leland and Bob is not so clear in the movie. Yes. 
that was my memory. And mm-hmm. then we just finished watching it right again. Mm-hmm. And I was definitely justified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's a very ambiguous still. Yes. I think, um, I had forgotten how much in the film you see Leland Bob, uh, how much you see Leland struggling mm-hmm. um, with both what he's doing and what he's done and also his sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's really interesting in the movie is not just that you see both Leland as Leland and Leland as Bob, but there's the definite implication that Leland can remember the things that Bob does, which mm. was not clear at all in the show. Which was denied in which the show. Which was denied in the show, yeah. He didn't remember anything until... Until uh, Bob took until over Bob, again. Yeah. Until Bob left his body. Mm-hmm. Right. Right before he died. Right. Um, whereas in the film, I mean, there's, there's the really disturbing scene where Leland, who's clearly being dominated by Bob... Um, uh, grabs Laura's hands and claims that there are um, that there's dirt under her fingernails and she needs to wash her hands and and he's very like um, possessive. He says some inappropriate things about like the necklace she has and was mm-hmm. it, whether it was given to her by a lover. And um, later on, after dinner, he's very clearly regretful and he's crying and he comes to her room and tells her he loves her. And yes. um, I think it's it's pretty clear he knows what he did and he's sorry. Um, I don't know how much he remembers mm-hmm. of what he's done, but he does remember some things. And yeah. Right. And then there's the whole Teresa Banks storyline. Yeah. And was it Leland or Bob who killed Teresa? Because you might expect, based on the Laura storyline, that once we find out what happened to Teresa Banks, it would be very similar. Mm-hmm. That Teresa Banks was being tortured, sexually yeah. abused in some way by uh, a demon mm-hmm. um, in Leland or someone else. Yeah, it could have been someone else. They and, could have written and, it that way. Right. Um, but it's a very mundane storyline. Mm-hmm. where all the motivations are understandable just as the motivations of uh, a lawyer in a small town who is visiting a sex worker yeah, and is being blackmailed by that sex worker. Yes. Um, and his, so, right. I mean, you know, why it, it doesn't make a lot of sense if, if we just say, oh, it, it must be Bob that's mm-hmm. going into Leland and making him visit Teresa Banks. Yeah. I'm not sure that makes much sense. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely Leland that's visiting Teresa Banks. Well, I don't know whether it's Leland who kills her. Yes, and in particular, um, Leland, you know, he wants Teresa Banks to bring her two friends. Yes. And then he sees that he one sees of them is are. his daughter, yes. and he freaks out. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob wouldn't care. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, so in that moment, he is not Bob. But is that the same Leland who tells Teresa, you look just like my Laura? Yeah. And Which why is... would Bob be jealous? Why would Bob be jealous? Right. Um, why would Bob care if Leland is being blackmailed? Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, I'm not saying there's a definitive answer that they're totally separate. 
I don't think they're separate at all. And, and I mean, like, even... That they're, that they're, yeah, that they're, um, that it's just Bobby Jaleesa, and that's well, the point. Well, it's interesting that you say, why would Bobby jealous? I mean, in the scene where um, he tells Laura to wash her hands and he asks her about the necklace and he mm-hmm. says, like, is this from a lover? Is it from Bobby or do you have somebody new? Um, I think, you know, we were just saying that that's, that's Bob in control there, mm-hmm. but he's clearly expressing some jealousy or at least possessiveness. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying I, I'm not convinced that that's Bob in control. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I don't know. Right, because then in the scene, even the scene where his, his, we see Leland's face change dramatically. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the closest thing in the movie that we see to a clear delineation between Bob and Leland. Mm-hmm. Before his face changes, he has this angry look. Yes. And, you know, that's, that's not totally incompatible with what we see of Bob. But in the show, Bob is this fun-loving mm-hmm. <laughs> sadist. Yeah. Um, who's totally in control and calculated when mm-hmm. he's not committing his ecstatic, gleeful murders. Right. And what we see of Leland is that he's really angry at Laura. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. So I don't know. Is that Bob? Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right that there's Bob elements there. The yeah. fingernails, mm-hmm. he's, he's obsessed with the fingernails. That goes back to the letters. <sighs> yeah. He even says dirt under this fingernail right here. Right. Uh, I guess suggesting I, that that's the fingernail, but I think the it letter was. Yeah. is under. Mm-hmm. I think it was. And that was also uh, a pattern with Teresa Banks' murder, the mm-hmm. fingernail. Right. The letter under the fingernail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just impossible to say where one ends and the other begins. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. I think the movie doesn't let Leland off the hook in the way that the show ends up doing. Um, I forgive the show for that. I think we talked about this before, but uh, it's... Um, Cooper even says to Sarah at one point, it wasn't Leland, it was Bob. Case mm-hmm. closed. Um, it wasn't really him. And um, that comes after a scene at the end of the previous episode where they sort of talk about, you know, which which would we rather believe that there's this demonic entity that could do all these terrible things and take a guy over and, um, you know, we're powerless against demons like that. Or is it something really mundane and horrible that a man raped and murdered his own child? You know, what is more comforting to believe? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can read what the show does and what it makes Cooper say as telling you that, well, he's decided that that's more comforting. So yeah. that's what he's going to believe. And that's what he's going to allow Sarah to believe. Yeah. So she doesn't have to think about what was going on in her house. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie does not let you hold on to that comfort as a viewer. No. Now, and that reminds me of a little detail I had noticed before. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually not sure I have the dialogue right. I'll sure. have to go back and check the script. Yeah. Although it's not always one-to-one with the script. There mm-hmm. were a lot of things in the script that didn't make it in the movie. Yeah. And some things in the movie that aren't in the script. Mm-hmm. But uh, shortly before Laura dies, yeah. we see Leland on one side of her saying, I thought you always knew it was me. Yeah. And then Bob on the other side, who I think says, I 
I didn't know that you knew it was me or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what to make of that. I don't know what to make of that. Uh, But it's certainly um, the idea that that Leland was simply absent, Mm -hmm. that he was in a kind of uh, fugue state. Yeah. It does does not hold water in the movie. No, it doesn't. And I think, you know, don't want to get ahead of ourselves and into the return, but I think it's pretty clear um, because so much of the return Cooper is, or like a version of Cooper is being controlled by Bob. Um, and it's nothing like Bob is Leland. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't find young girls to murder and put um, letters under their fingernails. Right. He doesn't sing and dance. Um, yeah. He doesn't do any of that stuff. And I think it's, um, it's a mistake to see Bob as something that purely possesses, like, possesses a person as if they're just a vehicle. Yes. Um, it's more like a melding, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so they're incorporating, Bob is incorporating aspects of the host personality mm-hmm. and, and the host's desires. Yeah. And preferences mm-hmm. and obsessions. Right. Right. But then you can't completely let Leland off the hook. No, you it's can't. something that he, that he did want in some submerged way. Or... Right. Right. Or, um, I mean, who knows? Who knows? The way that it's tied to cleanliness is really disturbing. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, um... It's a kind of really dark expression of a sort of fatherly role, which is to sort of control and corral the women in his keep. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what a patriarch does. Um, And so if somebody believes that that's what a patriarch does and that he has complete control over his daughter's, body and her sexuality well what does that give him license to do right it gives him license to do a lot um it's yes it is disturbing right um yeah the incest is not just um it's it somehow has an explanation Mm -hmm. or a connection to this context of a father yeah like um i don't know what i'm trying to say it's not just a random evil thing right um it's somehow the perverse logical Mm -hmm. extension yeah of a warped relationship yes yes of possession yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah i'm just thinking about this recurring pattern on the show of, you know, men being asked, did you kill Laura Palmer? Did you love, did you hurt her? Did you kill her? And them responding with, I loved her mm-hmm. as if those two things can are contradictory. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they, they talk about it like it is, but it's, um, you know, Leland says in this film several times, I love you to Laura. 
he says several times on the show that he loves her. I think he does, but like, what does that mean? What what does it mean for a man like this to love his child? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of parents who do terrible things to their children often say they're doing it for the child's own good. Um, or they are somehow expressing their love in a mm-hmm. way that feels appropriate to them. Yeah. I'm not excusing anything, obviously. But um, I think, yeah, when Leland says that he loves her, he's not lying. Mm-hmm. But, like, what is what good does that do? Right. You know? Yeah. So it's, it's you know, um, the scene where he, he comes and basically apologizes to her and tells her how much he loves her. Cheryl Lee plays listening to that so well because you can you can just see all of the different emotions that are or you know she says kind of tentatively dad like you know is is this really you it's not the bad version of you it's the good version of you right um I think she can tell the difference you know between at least that enough to see oh my dad has two sides of him or something like that but once he leaves the room and her her face kind of falls, you can tell it's just what difference does it make? <clears throat> does it like matter? what what good does that do her? What does it matter that he's sorry and that sometimes he's nice? You know, this it's just how it how it works with abuse in all kinds of families. Right, does that become just another element of control? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Whether it's meant to be or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Um, And I think, just to kind of piggyback on this, another thing that this movie tells us that the show does not is that Sarah knows. Yes. I mean, she may not know everything that she knows, but she knows. Mm -hmm. You could tell in that scene with with Laura being told to wash her hands. um, And Sarah just keeps saying, don't. Don't touch her like that. She doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Sarah never seems surprised. No, no. She's horrified. She's horrified, but she's not surprised. No. And, you know, the show, the movie really emphasizes how much Sarah smokes. Um, she's usually smoking in the show, but her daughter had just died. Uh, it's interesting that the movie, she's smoking just as much and she clearly drinks a lot and she um, doesn't go anywhere, doesn't seem to have any friends or a life. Um, We have no idea what she does all day. Um, I guess she's not always in the house, but Sarah knows something is going on. Sarah is miserable and knows there's a problem. Yes. And she knows she's being drugged. I I think she does. You know, Leland hands her that glass of whatever. And, um, yeah, something in it. Right. And I think she knows that he's giving her something. Well, especially when he makes her finish it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And that's why it, it makes it hard for me, you know, to blame Sarah. I feel like there is, um, you know, a reading where you can say, you know, she ignored too much. She 
she should have done something and maybe she should have. And I think, you know, definitely in the return, see a woman who has been carrying a lot of guilt inside her and hates herself. But, you know, she's being abused too. Yeah. Well, I guess. I mean, we don't really see her subject to outright abuse. No. I guess maybe we can infer it. Like, why is she, she just going along? I would call drugging someone abusive. Yeah, but I guess I mean, like, he, he never forces her to do anything. No. So we would have to infer that there's an implied threat yeah. based on things he's done in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it's just that she's kind of a weak person yeah. or doesn't want to rock the boat or right. something. Yeah, all those things. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, we're parents now. It's kind of hard to imagine uh, letting that happen. Yeah. Uh, unless I thought I was going to be killed. Yeah, honestly. Honestly. So, which we never see him threat her. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think that's a big question mark. Right. Just because a lot of their relationship happens off screen. And so much of Sarah's story happens off screen. I mean, I feel like we find more about her in the return, but like, does Sarah have a job? She doesn't seem to be at home in the middle of the day. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I think when we don't see her... In the middle of the day, she's upstairs. Yeah. Maybe passed out or yeah, I don't know. Sense. One time Donna comes in and says, Where where are your parents? Where mm-hmm. are the cookies? Yeah. Um and That's true. Apparently they're upstairs dancing. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he makes her dance a lot. Maybe that he is makes abuse. her Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't do that to people. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I get what you're saying. I think you could definitely read Sarah as an abused woman mm-hmm. who is equally a victim. Yeah. In the return, it seems like she, I guess either way, mm-hmm. she's hollowed out by guilt. And yes. she has maybe allowed some evil to enter her mm-hmm. through her complicity. I think it's hard to not say there's some complicity, whether it's coerced or not. Right. Um, and that Sarah, I don't know, she never, she, even after Leland was dead, I mean, mm-hmm. it seems like, I guess I don't know what she should have done, right. but just keeping it all a secret, hmm. I guess it was out, but keeping her, yeah. she never said, oh, and he abused me, and mm-hmm. he, I, I knew, but I didn't want to say, and I, I don't know. But, well, I think, you know, it. I also think when I say that Sarah knew, I don't think Sarah ever saw anything happen. I don't think that she um, maybe put the sentence together in her head. My husband is raping our child. Um, But she knows Leland has an inappropriate obsession with Laura and with Laura's sexuality. She knows that Laura is incredibly unhappy. Mm-hmm. She knows that Laura goes places at night. Mm-hmm. Um, she knows that uh, Leland goes places without saying where. She knows that Leland is drugging her regularly. Yeah. Um, 
And she never asks. She never asks, Laura, are you okay? What's going on? Do you need help with something? Is somebody hurting you? It's, um, it's hard to watch as a parent. It really is. Nobody, nobody notices. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, that is, you know, that's her buying into her role as well. Yeah. Yeah. She has in a subservient role. And, that's true. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago, mm-hmm. the early 90s, but yeah, I think that was a bigger part of culture, certainly in, sure. rural, in rural areas. Yeah. For sure. And, um, you know, yeah. um, it's never like explicitly said, but the Palmers are one of the wealthier families mm-hmm. in Twin Peaks. Um, certainly wealthy enough that uh, Sarah doesn't need to work. And it's, you know, it's mentioned in the movie, um, I think deliberately, um, Teresa at least thinks of Leland as like a rich guy. That's why she wants to blackmail him. Um, we don't really know how much money the Palmers have. Certainly they have less than like the horns, but, um, you know, Leland gives them a pretty good life and Mm -hmm. Sarah wants to keep that life. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that she's like nefarious or that she only thinks about money, but, um, it's hard to decide, okay, I'm going to blow up my life and, um, everything I'm comfortable with and probably all the people I know and, um, overturn everything because I have suspicions about something that Mm. might all be in my head. Right. So, yeah, probably just easier to act like it is all in your head and smoke a lot. Yeah. We see her with a book called How to How to Speak German. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I have no idea what that's about. No. No. I tried to connect it with something else in this show and I couldn't think of anything. Mm-hmm. Um it's right before she sees the white horse. Um, which on the show she saw um, before Maddie was killed, right? Right, because she had been drugged. Because she had been drugged again, yeah. Right, so that's another detail that's explained. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that actually is sort of a helpful explanation. Yeah. Um, because in the show it's only implied. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here it's clear that what was happening when yeah. Maddie died, when uh-huh. Sarah came down the stairs, is that she had just been drugged. Yeah. And the drug was causing her to see the hallucination. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just before she passed out. Or yes. Or she was dreaming it, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why do we think it's a white horse? Isn't that a trope? That it's uh, a horse means heroin? <laughs> I, I guess that is a trope. Do you think that's what's happening here? I don't know. <laughs> that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess it... It made more sense in my head. Mm-hmm. But that was my connection between a horse and drugs. It's some kind of narcotic. Yeah. Uh, True. That's not a that's uh, not a very poetic explanation, I guess. No, no. Although that could be it. Um, what was the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? Is there a white horse? I know that the pale horse is, is death. Yes. 
Um, I used to know the explanation for this, right? Because pale, it's, people think the pale horse is the white horse, but mm -hmm. they're different, right? And pale actually means something else. But I forget what it means. Yeah, I forget too. We should know these things. But it's okay. uh, I think. Uh, oh, I think it's green. I think it's like a sickly green. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. Uh, what is the white horse? I don't remember. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. Um, it's such an arresting image to see the horse in the living room. Yes, it's incong incongruous. Mm -hmm. um, something that shouldn't be there. Right. I mean, it also made me think of communion. Mm. Where... Uh, whenever whenever Whitley Strieber saw an owl, that turned out to be a screen memory implanted by the aliens hmm. that were messing with him. Okay. So it's just something it, that, and and it's an in communion. It's the image of the owl is sort of like yeah, it is a version of what he saw, which is the alien with the big eyes. That is also in um, Blade Runner, and I think it's a horse in Blade Runner actually. Right. That is uh, an implanted memory, and if the person has it, that's how you know they're um, a replicant. Right. Yeah. So it's it's an image being uh, put into her mind mm -hmm. so that she doesn't see what's really happening. She sees the horse in the house, so she doesn't see what else is in the house. Yes. Yeah. But the horse is something, uh, I don't know. It's, I mean, the horse is kind of beautiful. It's a white horse. Yeah. Um, almost like a, something from fantasy, mm -hmm. you know, most horses are, are white, right? Right. I don't know. I don't know about horses. No, I don't either. <laughs> no, but it's, yes, it's a fantastical image, mm -hmm. uh, maybe indicating that she's living in a fantasy world. Yeah. Yeah. Although... There's always something kind of visceral about it, mm -hmm. uh, almost implying the intrusion of sexuality, of mm -hmm. wild, something wild. Horses are often, the, uh, yes, horses are often spirit. used as like stand-ins for awakening female sexuality. Right, because um, you ride them. In literature, right, and, and people think that women are sexually excited by riding horses. Yeah. That's why we need side saddles for dicks. ladies. Yes. They've got big dicks. Yeah. But also, you know, they're, they're, they're animals, but big. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. It, yes, it's this, it's the, the wild. Mm -hmm. Somehow because they are large animals, physically yeah. powerful, physically imposing, but integrated, integrated into human life. Yes. They become can become companions mm -hmm. um you can they're emotionally sensitive yeah. and you can sort of feel in tune with their emotions mm -hmm. um feel a relationship with them yeah you work in tandem with them mm -hmm. and that includes a kind of emotional yeah connection mm -hmm. um so i can see that being uh i don't know it, it, it it's a it, it can be thus a signifier for an or this tension with the animal part of yourself. Yes. That also is something that needs to be controlled, like a right. Like a, yeah. Like a horse. Yeah. Like a steed that you're riding, mm -hmm. or it's going to control you and destroy you. Right. 
right? It's um, horses are really interesting animals. They are physically powerful and they give people um, power, which we wouldn't have otherwise to go places very quickly to mm -hmm. be up high. And, um, but they're extremely physically vulnerable animals. I mean, if, if you ever work with horses or talk to people who do, like it's, um, it's genuinely very sad that um, an injured horse, even if it's an injury which, you know, would heal for a person, you, you have to put the horse down. <laughs> like if it yeah. breaks a limb because it's not going to heal and it won't be able to walk. Um, they just aren't very well put together in that way. Um, and I think they have like high rates of cancer compared to other domesticated animals. They just, um, they're very physically vulnerable and they're very emotionally sensitive. They scare yeah. easily. Um, they can be very high strung. They can be easily traumatized. Um, and it's this, yeah, this strange combination of strength and weakness mm -hmm. um, that seems contradictory. And I've said on this podcast before that I think a lot of horror comes with, um, or horror is generated rather by uh, forcing us to look at contradictory things. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of what Twin Peaks is about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, horses are, um, I don't know, are they, you know how dogs are boys and cats are girls? Obviously. Well, are horses also girls? That's the question <laughs> I pose to you. You just said they had big dicks. Not yeah. a contradiction. Um, do I contradict myself? Do I contradict myself? Well, I don't know. I guess, <laughs> like you said, there's something vulnerable about horses as mm -hmm. well. So on the one hand, yes, they can stand in for this overwhelming physical power. Yeah. Um, but also uh, they are exploited for their physicality. Yeah. Their, their power makes them vulnerable to exploitation. Right. If horses had not been able to run fast, we would never have domesticated them. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. And, they, and I mean, they are, people will say, this horse is beautiful. You know, right. They're a beautiful animal. Yeah. And we don't say that about all animals. No, maybe we should. Yeah. Why can't a cockroach be beautiful? Mm. But... Uh, um, yeah, so they're aestheticized. Yeah, for sure. And somehow that plays a role in the fact that um, they're used and consumed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes literally. Yeah, yeah. And put on display. Mm -hmm. Heavily commodified. Um, like there is a real... <sighs> a lot of money is made off of them. Um, not just like by selling them, but by racing them, by, you know, mm -hmm. selling their sperm, using them as breeding stock for other yeah. racehorses. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of exploitation in that world, both of horses and the, of the people who ride them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if that's what David Lynch had in mind. Yeah. This but... is not a podcast about horses. <laughs> it's not about the horse. <laughs> <laughs> but those are just some thoughts. I think yeah. 
uh, it's probably an image that came up, uh, out, you know, bubbling out of his subconscious. Sure. Yeah. And uh, it, it means what we want it to mean. Mm -hmm. Or not. And more. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I think uh, the and the fact it has to always mean more. That's important. Yes. Yes. It always means more than you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I would feel disappointed if I thought we figured out what the horse meant. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I was looking for a graceful uh, way to bring us back to your original question. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I couldn't think of one. Uh -huh. But I do want to get back to it. What's what? the point of this movie? Right. Because um, I don't think we answered it just now. No. I mean, I um to give a mission statement for my whole life, basically, I, I reject utterly the premise that art needs to have a purpose. I think it's enough that this film is a very beautiful portrayal of human heart suffering and that's enough yes. um but not every story gets told not every not every movie gets made mm -hmm. um david lynch wanted to come back to this story um yes. he was on a career high you know like uh wild at heart had just won the palm d'Or. um mm -hmm he was he was doing well why the show had been canceled um and he had walked away from it um even before it was canceled he had kind of washed his hands of it and lost control of it so why did he want to come back what why do we what do we get out of this what did he get out of this right well he actually did say yeah uh, that he wanted that he wanted to go back and tell the story because he was still really in love with this character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think specifically with the way that she embodied both light and dark. That she's contradictory. Yeah. Exactly. Which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's the whole story. No. I think that he was angry. Mm -hmm. And some of the movie to me reads as... Uh, an angry protest and at a, ABC, an intentional provocation yeah. to everybody, yeah, the audience. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, I, he could not have been too surprised no. at the reaction. No, I mean, you know, like we we pointed out that the opening, uh, one of the first things we see in the movie is an axe going through a television. Yeah, yeah. And so I think this is Lynch saying, uh, I'm going to retell the story mm -hmm. and I'm going to resist the all of the boundaries that have been placed upon me. Yes. And some of it is as simple as now we can show nudity or whatever. Right, we can, show we can save news. fuck. Um, we can say fuck, although even then, uh, Leo says, I'm not fooling around for some reason. <laughs> I know, like you would ever say that. Uh, but it's also, I'm not going to conform to narrative mm -hmm. conventions yeah. unless I want to. Right. And 
and then going deeper to get back to the idea of art without purpose, I think he saw um, the, the story of Laura in the context of this mystery as having been subordinated to mm-hmm. so many different purposes. Yes. And he, he wanted to do that. He wanted to tell a mystery story where there was a MacGuffin, mm-hmm. Laura was a MacGuffin. Yeah. And he wanted that to go on and on. Right. Um, but he, and, and you know, that was, I, I think maybe he, he regretted that. Mm-hmm. Not just because he didn't get to do what he wanted to do, but maybe he felt like the initial impulse was wrong. He had made a yeah. deal with the devil once again after mm-hmm. after making Dune, regretting that. Right. Um, somehow he had once again allowed himself to be confined. Mm-hmm. And so he had taken this character that he was in love with and made her a MacGuffin. Yeah. And she became Laura's death had a purpose. Yeah. The purpose of moving the story along. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that's what narrative does because Mm -hmm. the narrative is pleasing to the audience. Right. um, Because it takes suffering and puts it in a box Mm -hmm. or wrapped in plastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, That's exactly it. And then uh, manipulates it mm-hmm. and puts, uh, you know, uses it to introduce these great characters yeah. and these quirky settings and the jokes and the coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then at the end of it, the audience feels great. Yeah. Uh, but the audience didn't feel great. <laughs> no. Uh, at the end of Twin Peaks, the series. Mm-hmm. So maybe David Lynch thought, the whole thing was a fool's errand. Yeah. So why don't I go back to that character that I was in love with? Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to tell her story without a purpose. Yeah. I'm yeah. just going to tell it because it's in itself fascinating. Yeah. I'm going to, um, you know, it's it's not a step somewhere else. Yeah. Laura wasn't a means. She was, she was an end. Right. It's continent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I think you're right about that. I um yeah, I I've said this before, I'm on record at, at finding a lot of the criticism of Firewalk with me that said that it was pointless. Really misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I this was a piece of art made by a man. Like it's it's not misogynistic to criticize David Lynch, obviously, but but this idea that um we already knew what happened to Lara that meant that we knew Lara it um it's another way of yeah of wrapping her in plastic of of acting like the women and girls that stuff like this happens to the the only thing that matters is the things that happen to them there are only ever objects acted upon Mm-hmm. or or wrapped in plastic or put in a box or put in a frame um and that there's no value in knowing how that felt to them to live through that you know yeah. i think um this movie spends so much time inside laura's head and and that's something maybe we can talk about about um maybe how reliable this 
version of events is, whether it's um, mm-hmm. Laura's version, whether they, it's the objective version. But I watch it and I feel like I really am feeling what she's feeling and mm-hmm. seeing what she's seeing. And it's not pleasant. So I, d- I don't blame people for watching that and thinking, oh, I don't like this at all. Right. <laughs> You're not supposed to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, um, that's what great art does. It, it, it forces you into feelings. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like the opposite of what Bob does. Yeah. Um, it, it forces you to embody someone else mm-hmm. so that you feel their suffering in yeah. a way that transforms you and makes you more compassionate. Yeah, not less. It opens your you're not just feed, You're not just feeding on their suffering so that it, like, saps their humanity and yours, too. Yeah. I mean, potentially, maybe you could say there's always an element of feeding on suffering. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure when she would disagree with that. No. Just like throughout the movie, I was wrestling with how much, is there any, is any of this leering? Is any of this titillating? Yeah. Um, or is it supposed to be in order to have, to kind of push and pull the audience? Well, I think in some ways this is, um, this is his most sadistic film um, in, in the way that Hitchcock could be sadistic in that I think a lot of it is spent deliberately provoking a feeling in the audience and then punishing them for having that feeling, yes. um, which is not a criticism at all. I think it's a very difficult and delicate thing for a piece of art to do. Yeah. Um, and something that in the wrong hands can be really disastrous. But I think it's, you know, sort of similar to saying, well, why did we need to see this movie at all? You know, asking, why do we need to see all of this nudity? It's, um, it's, it's Lynch, again, forcing you to confront what, what Lara's life and death actually meant, instead of having them just be MacGuffins. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, you know, saying, oh, you, you want, you want to see some tits? Well, here you go. Doesn't feel good, does it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the tits. Okay. Um, <laughs> because the first time I saw this movie, I was a little uncomfortable mm-hmm. by the, uh, made uncomfortable by the nudity. Yeah. Thinking, is this, you know. Gratuitous. Is this that male gaze that I've heard so much about? Which yeah. I as a male don't have right i don't have a male gaze so i just read about it no in books right (laughs) but the first time we see Mm -hmm. nudity um it's very deliberate the camera pans pans down down Mm -hmm. and maybe there's an arguable purpose because we get to see that james is like cupping her breasts Mm -hmm. i guess we needed to see that i don't know yeah but it feels very purposeful and i'm like is that Mm -hmm. necessary yeah is that gratuitous? Yeah. And then lo and behold, the exposure and covering up of breasts then becomes an explicit theme in the movie. Yeah. It's a signifier mm-hmm. of the loss of innocence and the attempt to regain it. And I think it it shows the way Laura is constantly performing her sexuality. Um, I think 
the movie takes the bloom off of the rose uh, with regards to her relationship with James in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the show suggests that she had a certain level of contempt for him yeah. or, or pity or, or she, uh, there's maybe a little bit of self-loathing mixed in there. Mm-hmm. Like if he's really interested in me, he must be stupid. Yes. Um, but, you know, the when we first hear about this relationship, it's from Donna, who clearly, and even more clearly in the film, really romanticizes that relationship as something that was really good for Laura and that James saw the real Laura. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that the movie takes that point of view. I think she performs with James just as much as she performs with anybody. You know, why did, why did she need to go into that room wearing only a towel where James was working um, in the middle of the day? (laughs) Like it's, it's not like they, they saw each other and then were overcome with passion and and took their clothes off or she did or whatever. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. I also think that, you know, this is a movie, mm-hmm. so they use visual symbols, right? Our stand-ins, mm-hmm. um, and right in the scene at the Canadian sex club uh-huh. uh, in the botched Canada. Yeah. Welcome to Canada. Welcome to Canada. Uh, here's your free marijuana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Join the sex party. Yes. Uh, they, you know, it when Laura exposes herself, that Donna has a big reaction to that. Mm-hmm. It's assured by it. And then later when Laura sees Donna exposed, mm-hmm. that's what kind of breaks her out of her stupor and causes her to run over and try to protect her friend. Yeah. By covering her up in this kind of mm-hmm. quaint way. Like, yeah. Um, it's like it's not even about the fact that she's making out with some stranger it's mm-hmm. like it's almost, other it's almost, people can see it's her. almost biblical yeah like childlike just cover you know mm-hmm. it's 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 naughty it should be covered up and, yeah it's happening in public but we're also i think it necessarily implicates the audience mm-hmm. that we're seeing yeah that it that if if these characters were healthy and happy we mm-hmm. wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing yeah. And the I fact th- that we're seeing mm-hmm. their bodies is a problem. Right. We're part of the problem. And I think it's maybe this is something we can talk about too. It's important here that Donna was recast. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a lot of reasons why that happened. But I think it, um, especially in this scene, it becomes appropriate maybe appropriate is the wrong word that Donna is now played by an actress who was an adult, um, Mm -hmm. but who looks a lot younger than Laura Flynn Boyle did um, or than Cheryl Lee does. Uh, She really looks like a kid. And um, I think that is also supposed to make you, make you think, Oh, I don't think I should be seeing this. This, this shouldn't be happening. Yeah. And I was telling you that nothing that graphic happens. No, no. Um, and in a way, yeah, I keep saying it's almost quaint. It's just mm-hmm. some 
toplessness. Yeah. But it feels so dirty. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, wrong. I think because no one's having a good time. Yeah. Um, I think Jacques is having a good time. Yeah, I guess so. Mm -hmm. And uh, as much as he's capable of having a good time. Yeah, R.I.P. Mm. Uh, but yeah, more more Kelly. You know, she's not as good, or she. I haven't seen her in anything else. I don't think she was acting... on the West Wing first season. Oh, that's right. I don't really remember. Uh, she <laughs> was not as good an actor as Larflin Boyle. Yeah. But I think well cast here, like you said. Yeah. Not just for her looks, but just her whole uh, her whole demeanor. Mm -hmm. Like Larflin Boyle um, just had a little uh, had more sophistication about her. Right. And a little bit of that noir vibe, mm -hmm. even in the early episodes of Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah, it's um, we've joked about this before, but uh, it is almost funny that you know, not that Geraldine wasn't beautiful. Obviously, she was and is beautiful, but and um, I think especially her portrayal of Laura has just this kind of weird, otherworldly charisma. Yeah, but um, the way she was spoken about as like this legendary beauty in Twin Peaks, when Twin Peaks is full of stunningly beautiful yes. women and girls. Um, like you just walk down the street and the woman running the diner is like the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. Um, but I think, yes, uh, Laura Flynn Boyle as Donna is so striking and so charismatic. You don't really believe her as the mousy best friend, which is why it works after Laura is dead, but I don't think it could work before. Right. And Yes, and in a way, maybe the fact that Maura Kelly is who's not, a pretty girl, not as uh, good an actor. Oh, I feel mm -hmm. like we're just shitting all over. Yeah, no, it's. I think I she like gives a good this, performance. I like her in this movie. Yeah. Um, but what I was gonna say is this: Maura Kelly has a doe-eyed, innocent quality, almost yes. like Judy Garland. Yeah. From the Wizard of Oz. That's which, a really good comparison. And Lynch loves the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can tell it. I mean, it was in his head around this time because so mm. much of it is in um, Wilds at Heart. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. So I think it was a good choice. I think so too. It's hard to imagine Laura Flynn Boyle in this part, but I think she also would have been good because she's a very good actor. Yeah. But I wonder whether if she had been there, they would have written it differently. Yeah, I don't know. Be. It's um, It's hard for me to picture her seeming really tentative in that scene at uh, the sex club in Canada. <laughs> Not that she would have been all into it or anything, but it's just, um, I don't know, you know, we see Donna on the show remembering some stuff she did with Laura. Like, mm -hmm. um, remember that scene where she tells Harold about them, like yeah. going skinny dipping and, um, you know, hooking up with these boys and, um, how Lara kind of pushed her to do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But she she does have those memories. And I feel like um, I could see that Donna doing that stuff. Um, I'm not sure I could see the movie Donna doing it. Right. Uh, okay. Well, I'm still not sure we've explained what the point of the movie is. Yes. Except we said it has no point. It, and it doesn't need one. But um, 
I guess I want to inarticulately connect this theme of um, exposure as uh, signifying like um, corrupted innocence or something. It's the fact of the movie being made at all. Like there's something there about how if you want to understand it, you have to see it. Mm-hmm. But um, you also might not like what you see, even if you wanted to see it. Right. And if you did like what you saw, maybe that would say something bad about you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, people people wanted like a big explainer for Twin Peaks. And I think Lynch gave them one in as much as it's possible. It's just that people didn't like what the answer was, which is that this is a story about horrible things happening to someone. Yeah, and you know, as many things are unexplained, mm-hmm. mostly some of the lore and yeah. supernatural details. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's not a very subtle movie. No, I think it's pretty straightforward. You know, like you said, um, Laura tells Donna not to wear her stuff and then says, I don't want you to be like me. Yeah. Basically taking the subtext and making a text. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's all pretty clear. Yeah. Um, that this is a traumatized person mm-hmm. and that's driving all of her actions. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I maybe I want to dig into that a little bit. Yeah. And say, say, what does that mean specifically? Well, it's um just kind of connect to what I was talking about before, like the difference between knowing something happened and actually seeing it. Seeing it. Yeah. You know, when we were watching this, you mentioned how, you know, uh, Laura sort of discovers that it's that Leland is Bob several times in the film, and why does she need to keep learning it? Um, you know, she has the initial discovery where she sees him coming out of the house after she knows that Bob was in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later, you know. Uh, Mike sees her and Leland in the car at the intersection and Mike shouts to her, it's, it, it's your father. Right. Um, Which I think she can't quite hear. Right. Um, and then finally, uh, Bob is in bed with her and she keeps saying, who are you? Who are you really? Yeah. And um, there's something there. Like she, she can't just be told and she can't just infer it from other suggestions she has to actually see it to know right um and i think the audience needs to to see it to know too yeah um we need to see we need to bear witness yeah no that's true like by the time we see leela on top of her Mm -hmm. we don't need to right right we already know what's Mm -hmm. going on yeah and Um, we already knew because we watched the show Right, yeah, it's like <laughs> right. Um, it's it's weird. Yeah, it's it's already dramatic irony before we even start watching the movie. We know mm-hmm. what Lord doesn't. Yeah. And then and then we yeah, but yeah. right, it's that it's that weird unsubtlety of the movie that is mm-hmm. its virtue. Yeah. That it um 
it's somehow important mm-hmm. that we see it, yeah. that we experience it. Because mm-hmm. knowing and experiencing are different. And that's part of that, going back to that idea of, of, of there, yeah. the positive possession of art, which is embodying someone else. There are tasting so the, many. In their mouth. Yeah, there are so many POV shots in this movie. And I think yeah. it's, it's important that in that scene where we finally see Leland literally on top of Lara, it's a POV shot. Yes. And when he puts the plastic on her, it's a POV, it's a POV shot, shot mm-hmm. from the ground. And so, so many, might, so yeah. many of the, like the death scenes are. Yeah. 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 The, the, laying the plastic down kind of reminded me of Vampire. Mm, yeah. The famous scene where it's a POV shot of someone getting buried. Mm-hmm. For sure. And the dirt going over there. The coffin yes yeah. it's a it's a coffin with a window yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, no I t- I totally think that that was probably an intentional illusion oh yeah um, watching vampire I could see that Lynch was heavily influenced by it certainly I think an eraser head yeah I think vampire it's a movie like once we get through all of these yeah. All the actual Twin Peaks content, and we want to do special episodes. That should be one of the movies. Yeah, but definitely, about. definitely a lot of connections with Twin Peaks. Like the fact that the villains in Von Pierre are just guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're mm-hmm. ghosts, I guess. Right. But they, there's something kind of mundane about them and yet creepy. Mm-hmm. That's a clear antecedent, antecedent to Bob. Yeah. Um, and, and just, yeah, the spooky, just this, the way the, the supernatural elements mm-hmm. um, are both magical and mundane. Right. But yeah, we'll have to talk more about that later. Right. I do think to, um, to bring it back to, to the movie, I think it's a, a good choice the way that all the supernatural stuff in the movie is kept very mundane um, in, in that it's... Um, None of it's glamorous. Um, I think on the show, you know, they they had a TV budget in 1990, so they couldn't like have this really like fancy other world with special effects or anything. It was just what they had, mm-hmm. and, and a room with red curtains because that's what they had. Um, but I think there's something really appropriate about the fact that these otherworldly beings who are tormenting Lara and others they are not like living it up in some great place you know they're they're not really um they're not aristocratic villains um i think the the arm the man from another place has kind of an aristocratic bearing to him but um you know they're in this shitty convenience store where they just kind of hang out there's there's something really like seedily appropriate about the fact that they have a four mica table, <laughs> um, not marble, not you know, yeah. not oak four mica. They eat creamed corn. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's how those things appear to us. Yeah, they you know the the other place they show up is a um, a trailer park. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not impressive except through their evil works. Mm-hmm. If they are evil. If they are evil, which, which is, you know, 
which is arguable. They don't seem to have much of an opinion of Bob. And whether that's because they are working against him or whether he's like competition or something. Yeah, the lore is not coherent. No, nor um, should it be. It's fine. Right. Yeah, I was trying to work it out. Like, what does the ring do? Mm-hmm. And my theory now is that somehow the ring protects you from Bob either. It doesn't yeah. protect you from Bob's violence. Uh-huh. That much is clear. Yeah. It seems to cause the violence. And the only way I can figure that it does that is that it prevents Bob from either feeding on you or entering you or both. Yeah. At which point Bob thinks you're useless and kills you. Sure. That's all I got. Yeah. With the ring. Yeah. <laughs> because no, the ring, right. it seems like it's the mechanism that allows Laura to die. Yes. That is something that we learn in the movie that I think that the show doesn't um, make clear, which is that Lara's death is in some ways a heroic act. Mm -hmm. It makes Lara a heroine instead of a MacGuffin because we can see that she chooses to die. And it's not in... I mean, I think there's a lot of despair going on, but I, I think it at that point where she puts the ring on, she knows what's going to happen to her. And she knows it's better than Bob taking her over. Mm-hmm. And she prevents him from doing that. She wins, you know? And I think that's, that's something that becomes complicated by the return and what happens there and like what we can infer happens there. And... Um, but it's it's not in the show at all, and I like that it's here. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think it is in the show that she wanted to die. Right, but it's it has such a different connotation yeah. in the show. Well, so in what way does she choose it in the movie? Because we've said that, and that's what I thought. But yeah, this time around, I. It felt a little more ambiguous to me. Hmm. Well, she puts the ring on. She puts on. the ring on. So somehow she knows, she has some sense that that will, does she know what that's going to do? I don't know. She was told not to do it by Dale. By Dale. And why not? Yeah. Because he doesn't want her to die. Yeah, he doesn't want her to die. But does he even know what's going on? I don't think he does. I don't think he does. And I think that's something that the return confirms and we can talk about it, you know, in 10 years when we get there. Yeah. When we first see Dale in the red room in this movie, I wrote in my notes, Mm -hmm. Dale is still futzing about in the red room. (laughs) Like he's just wandering around. And this is another thing that he sees. Um, But he, he, he knows that the red ring is being offered to her by these entities in the red room yeah. that are either malevolent or not entirely benevolent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, and he knows that um, the ring was worn by Teresa Banks. Yes. That's where it comes from because mm-hmm. he had the ring mm-hmm. and then they take it from him mm-hmm. in the red room and give yeah. it to her. Yeah. So obviously he, Dale would not want her to put on the ring. Yeah. That would cause her to die. Mm-hmm. But he can't know that that might be the best option for her. And that's something that Dale can't live with, which is the which right. is that he can't accept that that was the best option for her. He wants, well, because yeah. he still thinks of Laura as a MacGuffin. 
as somebody who either dies and sets this mystery in motion or lives and doesn't. And because he has no understanding of her life and what it was and what it meant to her, uh, he thinks that fixing it is a matter of just making it so she doesn't die. Mm -hmm. And fixing it would make, wouldn't be about that. It would be, it would go so much further back. She would be a different person. She would be a different person. She would been happening her whole life. I like, what age did she say? 12. Yeah. Just a little girl, you know, and, um, you know, girls change so much between the age of 12 and 17, even if nothing terrible happens to them. She would be a completely different person. Right. But Leland has been possessed even longer than that, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be that she was still being shaped or abused or groomed in some way Uh even before that. 100%. I mean, it's... um, you know, we'll we'll talk about this a lot when we get to the end of the return, but I think it's so um you know, it's so significant that, you know, when uh Dale gets his magic powers to fix what happened to Laura, he goes back to the night she was murdered and he gets to her, you know, before she goes to the cabin. And um he says, I'm gonna take you home. And at that point, Leland is there. Right. We know that. We know that from the film, that that Leland is still in the house. Laura's home is where she was getting raped every night. Why would you ever want to take her there? Yeah. Um, It's not a solution. Like, he doesn't fix anything. That couldn't fix anything. And even after that, like, when he goes to find her in Odessa, he just takes her home and he thinks that that's gonna... She gets home and it's... Nothing's fixed. Nothing yeah. is put right. Nothing can be put right. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's what the film is saying too, is that, you know, the, um, it was like a, a cliche, you know, the, the question who killed Laura Palmer. That was the, the defining mm-hmm. mystery of the show who killed Laura Palmer. And I think Lynch is telling us that you're asking the wrong question. You don't need to think about who killed Laura Palmer. You need to think about everything that came first mm-hmm. and everything that led up to it and who she was. Who was Laura Palmer? That's right. what he's interested in. Why did what happened to her happen? Why did she react to it the way she did? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we often take a sort of political mm-hmm. view or interpretation. Yeah. I wonder if for Lynch, even that is a cop out mm-hmm. because it's not a cop out, <laughs> but obviously we want to reduce suffering in the future. Yeah. But suffering in the past has happened and we think we can redeem it mm-hmm. if we prevent it from happening in the future. Yeah. Um, if we come up with a theory about it, if yeah. we explain it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, and here Lynch wants to wants us to, to face it head on and say the suffering happened. Mm-hmm. 
And in the end, maybe, maybe it doesn't matter what happened. Yeah. Or it does, but we can't let our, des our desire to know what, why it happened or explain it. Uh -huh. um, we can't use that as a way to say we've put it to bed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, Laura's suffering is a fact that, um, that, that wants to be total and absolute. Yeah. Yeah. Because for her, it was. Yeah. And in those moments, you know, that is, it will always have been. Mm -hmm. And that can't be undone. Yeah. And that's her life. Mm -hmm. And what do you do with that? Yeah. And what Lynch does with it is he uses the magic of cinema mm -hmm. to give us catharsis yeah. that allows us to think about the suffering in our own lives. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's the ultimate cover. Yeah. But it's still at least focusing on the suffering itself mm -hmm. and not allowing you to move past it. And that is what I felt. You know, it's a movie that's hyper-specific and the way it's focused on trauma. Yes. And a particular kind of trauma I haven't gone through and mm -hmm. never will. Um, but in the very last scene where Laura's crying, mm -hmm. it always gets me. Yeah. But what I was thinking about in that moment was my own mortality. Yes. And my own suffering mm -hmm. now and to come that I can't yeah. escape. Yeah. And this idea that that can be made right that an angel yeah. will appear mm -hmm. and you'll just, uh, you'll laugh. Yeah. Because it will all, we'll understand it by and by, like the old song says. Yes. Yeah. It's, like a, it's intensely Christian in a way. Mm -hmm. um, although in the past I've said Laura goes to heaven at the end, which I, in my memory was clearer, but it's I'm not, not sure so clear exactly this time. where she we is. We see her in blue yeah. at the end, mm -hmm. but um, but it also pans out, and we see her still in the right in the red room. But, but she has some kind of understanding that she it wasn't her life. She moves beyond it and looks back on it, and through distance, that's how we create meaning. Well, one thing that's retrospectively. Yeah, what I think is interesting about this, and I'm sort of forming this thought as I'm saying it is that it's almost like, this is not a criticism, Lara gets the catharsis, but we don't. Yeah. Lara gets to look back on her life now as a complete thing that, despite her suffering, led her to a place where right. she can laugh. Right. Um, and apart from just like a couple of shots of the angel, um, you know, for a movie that's full of POV shots, we don't really see what Laura is seeing when mm. she's laughing. Yeah. Um, we just see bits of what she's seeing and it's, it's like, she gets the catharsis, but we don't, yeah. you know, wow. we, we don't get to join her there because it's not over for us. I would say I got the catharsis. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, I guess I got it sort of, well, not I. Uh, we get the artistic catharsis. That's yes, temporary, right? 
Right. And so it's almost like that that temporary artistic catharsis mm-hmm. is just a pale shadow of the ultimate catharsis yeah. of transcendence, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which Laura gets because she earned it or does everyone get it? Yeah. I, I hope not everyone gets it right away. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us go to the Bardo. That's, I don't know. Um, We've talked about this. Yeah. We don't like the idea that Leland just immediately gets to go where Laura is. Yeah. I don't like it. I no. don't like it. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, it was cathartic. But I, I also think, like, it can't be it can't be us moving past Laura's pain. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that we don't get to move past it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's more what I mean. Is what allows us to have the catharsis to join her, to yeah. have our own community. Yeah, I her. think that's a better way of putting it. Because as long as you can compartmentalize her suffering, mm-hmm. you're not going to feel it. And yeah. you're doing that so that you don't feel it. Because mm-hmm. you're not, you didn't go through what she did, or maybe you do something different, or it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a TV show. Yeah. You know, it's what matters is this other thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, who killed Warren Palmer? Right. Um, uh, but because you know, there's nothing. There's nothing really like this in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because we are really artistically forced to enter into the POV of someone who is suffering and has no escape. Yeah. It is the inescapability of mm-hmm. what happens from beginning to end because we know how it ends. Yeah. And that's what makes the movie magic at the end meaningful. And it's so interesting that you said that because as we were watching this just now, I kept thinking about a line James says to her right at the beginning of the Laura section, you know, when maybe you were distracted by the pan down to her boobs, but (laughs) um, he keeps saying to her, don't ever leave me. Yes. Um, and I kept thinking about that as we watched it. And, and I kept thinking about the scene at her funeral in the show where the preacher says how impatient Laura was for her life to begin, by which I think we can pretty yeah. clearly infer she wanted to get the fuck out of Twin Peaks. Right. And like, why wouldn't she? And um, just how sad it is that that even the people who loved her with as much selflessness as she probably ever experienced. Mm. It wasn't selfless. No. Because every, it's like everything was conspiring together to keep her there. Yeah. Um, It really was inescapable. Like even the people who claimed to love her just like wouldn't let her, wouldn't let her go. Like Donna never gives her any privacy. Donna keeps like asking her about stuff and following her. Yeah. Um, James says, never leave me. And, you know, her father's obsessed with her and she's, you know, not old enough to move out yet. And um, she's stuck. She's stuck. It's lit- it is inescapable. Um, yeah. it's, it's very sad. It is. Uh, I just want to note for the record that when the camera pans down to her boobs, I was only distracted <laughs> by my desire to protect Shirley yeah, sure. from the perverted eyes of other people watching the, the movie. Of the male gaze. Other people with the male gaze watching right. the movie, unlike right. myself, 
You're right. Who would never be attracted to Shirley's movies. <laughs> Shirley has gone on record as saying that, you know, David Lynch is one of the most supportive directors that she's ever worked with in terms of like making her feel safe and respected on set when she has to do, you know, nude scenes or sex scenes or, or anything kind of uh, tough like that. Um, that those are often hard, but he's always really wonderful about it. And just about all the actresses who have ever worked with him have said similar things. Mm -hmm. Um, I know Naomi Watts has, Laura Dern has. Um, He has a pretty good reputation on that front. Yeah, and a lot of those actors keep working with him. They keep working with him, yeah, over and over. All right, I think that might be a good stopping point. Yeah, we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks because there is so much more more to talk about. about. I have a whole list of things. I want to talk about what the log lady says to Laura, which I think is really important. I want to talk about the scenes with Bobby, which I think are really revealing. Mm -hmm. Um, Laura's angel, what that means. Um, We could probably stand to talk a little bit more about the lore. Yes. Um, and I know there was some stuff that we left out of our conversation about the FBI section, which we wanted to talk about too. So mm-hmm. we'll have a lot more, at least one more episode about this movie. And then after that, we're going to watch uh, The Missing Pieces, which is all the stuff that was cut out of the movie. Mm-hmm. So there's there's going to be a lot more before we even get to the return. So we don't know when it'll happen. Yes. We Hope, are. <laughs> hopefully it'll just be in a couple of we're weeks. We're not on a regular schedule yet. Yeah. We'll, we're trying our best. Yeah. But we'll see you when we see you. But for now, we wish you nothing but the very best in all things. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool. But please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.